Welcome to Salem Heights Church. We're so glad that you can be with us. We get to worship together, get into God's word. And wherever you are, we're thankful that you're with us today. I wanted to address you men out there. Men's Charge is coming January 22nd and 23rd, and we would love to have you with us. Uh, AJ had said last week about January 5th, that deadline was really about getting the shirts ordered. I ordered extra. Men, still register. We're gonna be in the auditorium. We're gonna also have overflow in the chapel, but also this is an online event. And the only reason there's like a $30, uh, not charge, but just giving towards it for 30 bucks is because we wanna give you this. It's God's promises for your every need. Uh, any topic that you can think of with regards to what you need, this takes you to scripture to show you in scripture where to go. And so we wanted to have, have that and then the t-shirt. But also folks, as we're getting back into the book of Acts, one of the things we wanted to be able to do is, is offer this. It's a scripture where you can uh, take notes next to the book of Acts. If you need one of these, we had these going prior to us beginning the book of Acts. We were doing this. We have them in the office and we're gonna order more. So if you would like one of these uh, scripture note taking uh, for the book of Acts, we would love to get that to you also. Well, enjoy worshiping together. Uh, may the time also in God's word, uh, it will never come back void. May it bless you. We're thankful that you're here. Well, good morning, church. We welcome you here today. Uh, I wanted to encourage you and remind you of what one of God's promises here as we get ready to worship. It's out of Revelation 1-7. It says this, it says, Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples on earth will mourn because of him, and so shall it be. Amen. There is coming a day when this will be no more, and we will be with him forever. And so we're going to sing about that now. He's coming on the clouds And kings and kingdoms will bow down There's coming a day When every chain will break And open hearts declare His praise But who can stop the Lord Almighty?
coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. That is what we have to rejoice in and look forward to as believers. So we sing this in confidence. For who can stop the Lord Almighty? For who can stop the Lord Almighty? And who can stop the Lord Almighty? For who can stop the Lord Almighty? For who can stop the Lord And how great thou art. 
how great you are. And when I think that God, His Son, not sparing, sent Him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, He bled and died to take away my sin. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to Thee.
First Peter 3 says this, it says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for in his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. In the darkness we were waiting without hope and without light till from heaven you came running there was mercy in your eyes to fulfill the law and prophets to a virgin came the word from a throne of endless glory to a cradle in the dirt and praise
Father, you are the King of Kings. Your Son is King of Kings. And we are so thankful that we do know the King of Kings. Father, we love you. And we're so thankful for your son, Jesus. Jesus, we're so thankful that you did what you did for us on that cross. We worship you even now today, no matter what turmoil goes on around us, and no matter what may happen next, we know you are in control, and in the end, you win. We can put our trust, faith, and hope in that. So we pray that you'd help us to remember that this week as we go about our daily lives and live them for you. So we pray that you'd help us now as we hear from your word to be encouraged. In Christ's name, amen. Well, good morning, church. Um, welcome you to uh, our time in the word. And I wanna introduce a new series this week. We're calling Christianity on the Grow. I want you to find Acts chapter 13, and we're gonna be looking at verses one through three this morning to set up the rest of our study in the book of Acts. Just by way of reminder, uh, I, I want us to reflect for a moment on where we've been in the first 12 chapters in order to prepare us for where we'll be in the second half of the book. In the first half of the book of Acts, we see the church that is being born. It is born in Jerusalem and it lights on fire in that place. The believers that come to Christ in Jerusalem are in awe. Uh, they see signs and wonders. The church is growing numerically in crazy ways through those early years until a persecution comes in chapter 8 where Stephen is killed and people are run out of Jerusalem. In the first half, the first 12 chapters, the emphasis in the book is on Jewish believers in Jerusalem, and the primary apostle that we're looking at is Peter. But a transformation happens right here in the chapters we're going to begin looking at. In chapters 13 through the end, we see a transition happening. In Scripture, it says that the gospel was to go out to the Jew first and then to the Greek. And we see that pattern in the book of Acts, where it starts with Jewish believers, and then those believers share the gospel with Gentiles. And the second half of the book focuses on the Gentile church. Um, we, we still see an emphasis on a church that is born, but not born in a place. They're born in persecution. Gentile believers then go from that place and share the gospel around the known world. Um, and the primary apostle that we look at in the second half of the book is Paul. First half of the book is Peter. Second half of the book is Paul. The hinge point, the transition is right here in chapter 13. To help us sum up where we've been and to prepare us for where we're about to go, I just wanna lean on our friends from the Bible Project and a little summary that they have made. I hope it's helpful. During the first century, most people around the Mediterranean Sea lived in densely packed cities, all ruled by the Roman Empire. Each city was a diverse blend of cultures, ethnicities, and religions. And because of this, there were all sorts of temples for offering sacrifices to all sorts of gods, and each person had their own portfolio of gods that they gave their allegiance to. But in every city, you'd also find a minority group who wouldn't worship any gods but their own, the Israelites, also known as the Jews. They claimed that their God was the one true creator and king of the world. 
Now, all these cities were connected by a network of roads built by the Roman Empire, and so it was easy to move around, to do business, and even spread new ideas. Now, one person familiar with these roads was the Apostle Paul. He spent the second half of his life traveling from city to city, announcing that Israel's God had appointed a new king over the nations. This king wasn't like anyone who'd come before. Right. Most kings rule with aggression or power, but this new king rules with self-sacrifice and love. His name is Jesus, and Paul is his herald, who's inviting all people to live under this king's rule. The stories of Paul's travels and how people received this message, that's what the third part of Acts is all about. For some time, Paul's home base had been in the city of Antioch. And from there, he and his co-workers went out on three road trips, traveling by land and by sea to strategic cities throughout the empire. In each city, Paul's custom was to go first to the Jewish synagogue where his people gathered. He'd start teaching and showing how the Messianic king promised in the Hebrew scriptures is Jesus of Nazareth. And some believed this news, others didn't, and still others thought this message was so misleading and dangerous, they would incite riots to kick Paul out of town. And so that's when Paul would take to the bustling city marketplace. He would set up shop there to make and sell leather tents to cover his travel expenses. And here, Paul kept sharing the news about the risen King Jesus with anybody who would listen. He was often misunderstood as just promoting a new God. One time he prayed for a sick person, they were healed, and everyone around thought he must be a Greek God that came down to visit them. But Paul insisted there's only one true God and he was his servant. This message often stirred up opposition and more riots, and he got beaten, even thrown in jail. Why such a strong reaction? Well, the worship of the gods held together Roman culture. They believed the gods kept their cities safe, and the temple worship of the gods was a huge part of their economy. Paul wasn't just adding Jesus as a new god to the list. He was saying all other gods are powerless, even a sham. So he's undermining their way of life. Yes, and more than that. When Paul announced Jesus as a new king, he would call him Lord or Son of God, the very titles people used to refer to the emperor of Rome. So Paul's message could easily be heard as a threat against the entire political order. Why would anyone join this movement? I mean, it sounds dangerous. Well, people were captivated by the story of Jesus and how his love created communities where all people were treated as equals, regardless of ethnicity, gender, or economic status. These people formed new families that would eat together. They lived sacrificially and took care of their poor. They lived like Jesus actually was the king. Right. And so in every city where Paul announced the message about Jesus, people were being transformed by God's spirit to become new kinds of humans. So Paul would stay in that city and teach them the way of Jesus. And then he would leave for a new city. This was a difficult life. Paul had to endure a lot of pain and a lot of suffering. Yeah, and he did so because he believed that his own hardships were a reenactment of Jesus' suffering and death for others. He said it was God's own love that drove him to share the story of Jesus, no matter the cost. After his third road trip, Paul's reputation had grown. He had made many new friends, but had also made many new enemies that he would be wise to avoid. But Paul didn't avoid them. His next stop was Jerusalem, a city full of people who wanted him arrested, even dead. And so why he goes to Jerusalem and what happens when he gets there, that's what the final section of Acts is all about. So that is where we are headed. But the path 
into this next section goes through 13 verses 1 through 3. Read with me these words. It says, Now in the church at Antioch there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Then after they had fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them off. I just want to make a couple of observations about these three verses. And there are observations, I think, that help us understand what it is we're about to witness in the second half of the book few observations, and the first one is this. It is who we worship, not who we were, that drives our direction. This is a pretty significant moment in the life of the church, but I want you to see some of the names and what they were doing. This is a prayer meeting that's going on. The church is actively worshiping. Paul and Barnabas have just come back from a journey where they are delivering much needed supplies to the church in Jerusalem. A famine has been in the land. They didn't have enough food. They didn't have enough money. The church in Antioch sends supplies, food and money to the church in Jerusalem uh, as both an outreach and as a ministry. They're taking care of the poor and the impoverished and the church is thriving. In the middle of a prayer meeting, it gives us a list of names, uh, Barnabas, Simeon, uh, Lucius, Manaen, and Saul. Um, pretty significant names, but I, we would be uh, remiss if we had just taken a look at these names, skipped over them, and moved on. Uh, here's a list of people, and where they come from is as significant in this moment as what they're about to decide. You have Barnabas here. He's listed, and by the way, uh, order means something in Scripture, so the most encouraging person on the list is Barnabas. He's at the very top. In fact, the reason all these men are gathered together is because Barnabas came on a mission from Jerusalem to organize these men. He's at the very top of the list. You have Simeon, who was called Niger. You have somebody from Africa who even at that time would have been belittled in some of those communities, but he's a great leader among this early church in Antioch. You have uh, Lucius of Cyrene. The Cyrenians were some of those who had shared the gospel after hearing it in a synagogue. They shared the gospel in Antioch, but they were outsiders, Greeks, not considered central to the church in Jerusalem uh, until it had already been growing, until chapter 6. Um, but these Cyrenians are coming in, and here is one of their number that is a prominent leader. And then two names that are shockers. Manaen, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch. If you remember Herod the Tetrarch, you remember a story where John the Baptist is beheaded. He and his close friends, John the Baptist, are having a party. And at that party, they decide that they want somebody to entertain them. And the price that that entertainer named was John the Baptist's head on a platter. He is one of these friends of Herod. He is there when John the Baptist is killed and later on is worshiping the Jesus that John the Baptist was proclaiming. This is a shocker. And also Saul. If you remember 
We're in the church in Antioch, and the reason that there is a church in Antioch is because Stephen had been martyred. A great persecution arose against the church, and it drove believers away from Jerusalem, and it says they went as far as Antioch sharing the gospel. The only reason that there is a church in Antioch is because Saul started a great persecution. The entire mess that led to the church being organized in Antioch came from Saul in the very beginning, 12 years earlier. Saul has come to Christ. He's been leading and teaching in this church, and now these names are listed there. I just want you to observe that God can make a leader out of someone who's led a ludicrous life. Chuck Swindoll talks about some adversities that people have faced, and, and he says it this way. He said, some of the world's greatest men and women have been saddled with disabilities and adversities, but have managed to overcome them. If you cripple a man, you'll have Sir Walter Scott. You lock him in a prison cell, and you'll have John Bunyan. You bury him in the snows of Valley Forge, and you have George Washington. Raise him in abject poverty, and you have Abraham Lincoln. Subject him to a bitter religious prejudice, and you have Benjamin Disraeli. Strike him down with infantile paralysis, and he becomes Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Burn him so severely in a schoolhouse fire that the doctors say he will never walk again, and you have Glenn Cunningham, who set a world rec record in 1934 for running a mile in four minutes and 6.7 seconds. Deafen a genius composer, and you have Ludwig von Beethoven. Have him or her born black in a society filled with racial discrimination, and you have Booker T. Washington, Harriet Tubman, Marian Anderson, or George Washington Carver. Make him the first child to survive in a poor Italian family of 18 children, and you have Enrico Caruso. Have him born of parents who survived a Nazi concentration camp, paralyze him from the waist down when he is four, and you have the incomparable concert violinist Itzhak Perlman. Call him a slow learner or even label him retarded and write him off as ineducatable, and you have Albert Einstein. Disabilities and disappointments need not disqualify. But in the church, it's not just about overcoming adversity, but it's how you overcome adversity. It's the fact that the Spirit of God moves through broken people and causes them to rise above their history, rise above what their past would hold them to. A.W. Tozer talks about how a real Christian is seen, and he says it this way, a real Christian is an odd number anyway. He feels supreme love for one who he has never seen. He talks familiarly every day to someone he cannot see. He expects to go to heaven on the virtue of another. He empties himself in order to be full. He admits he is wrong so that he can be declared right. He goes down in order to get up, is strongest when he is weakest. He is richest when he is poorest. He dies so that he can live. He forsakes in order to have. He gives away so that he can keep. He sees the invisible, hears the inaudible, and knows that which passes knowledge. 
A Christian in general and a Christian leader specifically is an oddity. Here you have a group of men that in any other scenario, in any other story, shouldn't even rightly be in the same room. You have a story here that is bigger than brokenness. It's a display of what it means to be forgiven. It's a display of what grace means. And it's in these leaders, as they go to their knees, they begin to pray and they say, Lord, what is next? And God says, set apart these two. I have a great work that's about to happen. He does that through those who have lived a ludicrous life. It's who we worship, not who we were, that drives our direction. Uh, just a final thought on that. I want you also to notice in this passage that the Lord leads through unified leaders. It says there were in the church in Antioch these prophets and teachers. They all prayed, and as they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, as they were, as that entire group collectively were in the same place together in worship, yielded to each other, the Spirit of God moved through them. I want you to notice here that the emphasis is not on perfect leaders, but on unified leaders, and unified around something in particular. That is the Lord. Because of their focus on the Lord, God could work through even broken people, people with a history, people who shouldn't be leaders outside of the grace of God. That's a significant thing. It's who we worship, not who we were, that drives our direction. But a second thing I want you to see in this passage is that reproduction is a sign of maturity. This is a point that we've made multiple times in our church, but one of the evidences of maturity is the ability to reproduce. We know that through every single aspect of nature that is around us. Uh, if you are going to look at a fruit tree, you don't just put the seed in the ground or even plant a little fruit tree uh, in a field and expect the next year that there will be fruit from it. We actually take a season and wait for maturity to happen, sometimes as long as five or seven years, waiting for that fruit to arrive that shows that the tree is mature. Uh, and in fact, if it produces fruit too early, it can be harmful to that tree. But one of the signs of maturity is fruitfulness. And this is what we see in this passage that is emphasized and that God wants us to lift up. The fruitfulness in the church in Jerusalem led to disciples being made. The fruitfulness in this Antioch church was not just disciples, but churches being made. There was a production that would go around the world, and that is everywhere they go, the story would start over again. A group of people born out of prayer, born out of a passion for Jesus, would begin to gather and a church would be born. And that would happen over and over and over again and it goes right on down until today. I just want you as a side note to notice that new growth has a way of shaping our priorities. The finances, the gifts, the emphasis in that early church was around helping shape new disciples, but also fledgling churches. The gifts that they gave, the finances that they, that they gave went in to take care of the poor, to take care of those that were in need, but in particular, those needs that were identified by a local body of believers. Churches sprung up as a result of responding to the gospel, and then their priorities were shaped by that. 
One of the questions that I have even in my own life is if I feel like I'm drifting, if my priorities uh, seem to be stacking up or, or there are too many different directions that I'm being pulled, I've got to look at what it is that I am focusing on. Here, this new growth shapes their priorities, just like having children in the home, takes you away from doing whatever you want and focuses you on taking care of that new growth and handling these little ones in the best possible way. It shapes how you live, what you focus on, what you will do. That's what happened in the early church. These new churches became their priority and their emphasis. But I also want you to notice in this passage that concentrated prayer leads to uncommon purpose. It says that as they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Then after they had fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them and sent them out. Notice the bookends there. They were praying and fasting. That is showing a concentrated effort on prayer, even to the point that they are not focusing on food, not taking a break. They are depriving themselves in order to be focused on the Lord. In the midst of that moment, the Spirit of God comes in and tells them what they are to do. And coming out of this great revelation of what the next stage of church history would be, they continued to fast and be in prayer. They were concentrated on prayer, and it led to a transformation in history. This is a pattern that, is, uh, that, that continues even till today. Joel Beek is an author that has focused on prayer as a source of revival. In fact, he says in his writings that every great move of God can be traced back to a prayer meeting. He begins to just unpack through different stories that he is sharing uh, about revivals that happened at Hernhut and revivals that happened in Scotland and, and in Wales and in London and in Canada and in the United States, in Australia and around the world. He tells stories over and over and over again of those who had started in prayer with just a few people and it launches out into and is magnified into a world-changing moment. He shared about some students that had begun to meet in 1857 in New York City and how the stories of that prayer meeting and its growth impacted some students in Chicago. And then those students in turn impacted a small college that was in Australia. Two kids on a campus in Sydney, Australia, they were so impacted by what was going on in other places, they began to pray in their college, and a few other people began to watch them and mocked them, but the president of the college walked by and he was so stirred by what he saw in those students. He said, surely God has visited us in this place. He decided that he was gonna join them every day that they were gonna pray and they were meeting the next day at noon. The president and these two kids, and within a short season, over half of the campus was meeting. Within the next few years, People having heard of that story and prayer meetings springing up as a result of it led to the conversion of over two million people and the launching of a multitude of mission organizations. Tracing back their story to hearing about these two kids who were committed to prayer. 
The question that I often ask, I've asked it of our church and I ask it in my own life. If God were to answer all of our prayers with yes, what would the world get? If God were to answer our prayers with yes, would it just result in our family being well, our finances being settled, our surroundings being happy? Or would it result in a world that's lit on fire with the gospel and responding to Jesus Christ? That's the question that is begged in this section. What is it that led them to get on their knees? The successful group of people unified in prayer, the Spirit of God speaks to them and it lights the world on fire. The rest of the book of Acts is born out of this moment and it is significant. It's a moment of prayer. And by the way, it is something that you and I can do today. Final thing I would just have you think about as we close is this. This is the moment in church history, in the book of Acts, that we trace our current experience in church back to. What you and I experience today, a church of believers, not born in Jerusalem, but born out in the world, we trace our heritage back to this moment. The heart that was in the Antioch church, the heart that was reaching to the poor but focused on the gospel, was started, revealed, and the flame of that was fanned right here. God launching them out, and we can still see the fingerprints of this mission movement in our churches today. In order to help us reflect on that, I'd have you focus on this video, and then I would like us to ask a few questions in our small groups and pray. Reflect with me. What is church? Is it a building? With some pews? A piano? And stained glass? Or is it something more? 2,000 years ago, the church was born. It wasn't made up of the famous, the rich, or the powerful. It was made up of everyday people who passionately believed in the message of Jesus. It was the beginning of a revolution of love and freedom that would change the world forever. In 369 AD, the church built the first hospital as a place to care for those who cannot care for themselves. Today, the church is the largest single provider of healthcare in history. The church was the first to stand up for the rights of children, creating the first and largest orphanage system in the world. 100 out of the first 110 universities in America were founded as Christian institutions. Places like Harvard, Dartmouth, Yale, and Princeton. Much of the world's greatest art, architecture, literature, and music has been shaped by the church. But the impact of the church isn't just ancient history. Today, the church is stronger than ever and continues to impact every corner of the world. Over 300,000 churches in America and almost 5 million churches around the world stand ready to be instruments of change, to do what governments could never do. Every day, the church brings food and fresh water to millions of people across the world. It has a renewed passion to help widows and orphans and fights to free slaves in every part of the world. It stands ready as a first responder on the scene to provide relief for victims of disaster. The ripple of Jesus' impact can be clearly seen and felt in the church today. And it's made up of people like me and you. Today, you didn't just come to a building. You came to a revolution 2,000 years in the making. The world is facing as much trouble as ever. But we are not afraid. We were created for such a time as this. We will continue to do what we've always done. Proclaim the message of Jesus to help a world that needs him so desperately. 
welcome 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 to church